So we're in uh, John chapter 13 when, <clears throat> when John 12 is, is kind of wrapping up. The, the last significant thing we saw Jesus do is kind of this triumphal entry. So he begins to make his way in. Everybody's just overjoyed the way John records it. Uh, Hosanna to God in the highest, bowing down before him, putting leaves down in front of him. And so with John's chronology and the way that he has it set up, we can assume that then when the disciples gather and are together in this upper room and are ready for this upper room discourse, that this is kind of going through their minds, that they're thinking through this. Oh my goodness, did you see like, they finally recognize, oh, I mean, just, it's like everybody, like, did you see Sue from down the way? Yes, like Sue from down the way was there. And so like, it's just amazing that all these things are happening. All these things are building to this culmination. And Jesus offers them this teaching in that moment going to completely devastate their understanding of, of how these things are going and, and, and what this looks like, because he's going to give to them something that doesn't move in line with being recognized and worshiped. He's going to do for them something that completely sets the bar for what it is for him to be Lord and master, and that is being a servant. So we open up, and, and the first three verses really give us kind of the setting of this. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world, and then parenthetically, John tells us, he loved them to the end. So we recognize that Jesus' love for his disciples does not wane. It doesn't, doesn't diminish towards the end of his ministry. He is staying the course that God the Father has given him, and he knows that he has, time has come. He's about to surrender his life. He's about to die on a cross. Verse 2 tells us that there's some issue going on. It says, During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And so you have these gathered around the table. You have uh, the 12 disciples. You have Judas there. And, and he is already kind of set in his mind. He's already made a deal with the religious establishment to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows all of these things. He knows that in that room, with him and his 12 disciples, that one of them is going to betray him. He knows in that moment that his life will be surrendered on the cross of Calvary. He knew in that moment that he would be whipped. He knew in that moment he would be beaten. He knew in that moment that even Peter would briefly walk away. So he's got all of that going on. And so he's offering them this incredible teaching in this moment. Now listen to this, verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Stop there. I want you to understand something. There have been a handful of times in my life where I knew something bad was going to happen, but I had zero power and authority to change it. I can remember the first time I got a ticket. Uh, I was coming back uh, from a football game. I was driving in excess of the speed limit, not important how fast. And uh, I met a very kind DPS officer, and he came up to the truck, and I said, hey, look, I'm a high school senior. I'm taking the SAT tomorrow, football team. We played away, just getting back, want to go home and go to bed. He said, that's great. You're going to remember this for a very long time. And in fact, I, he was right, I do. And so I had zero power authority to change it, but I saw him the whole time he's walking up, and I'm thinking, warning, warning. I've heard this is a thing. They can give you warnings. Uh, apparently they can, but he chose not to. And so Jesus, in this time, all power and authority to affect change. Now, I want you to understand this. He knew what it was going to be like. He knew he was going to be rejected. He knew he was going to suffer and die. And he had all power and authority to bring it all to a halt. 
in that room with the disciples, he could have said, this is how it's going to play out or supposed to, but I'm going to squash that and I'm going to call everybody to bow down and worship me right now instead. He had all the authority to do that. Every bit of authority. God had given everything into his hands. And I want you to understand something. Jesus is so highly regarded, so well respected by those men following him that you'll remember when he first meets John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist's word? And, and it, it is effectively, look, I'm out here and people are coming to see me. This is what John the Baptist said. But one is coming after me and I am not fit to bend down and to untie his sandals. This is how low in the pecking order John the Baptist placed himself below Jesus. Jesus, full of power and authority, the Son of God, able to do anything he wanted to do in that moment, recognized by John the Baptist, having all authority, all respect. With that in mind, what he does next is completely contradictory to us in line with who Jesus is in that moment. For, verse four says, he rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus is putting on the uniform of a Gentile slave. Now, anytime someone saw someone dressed like this, they thought a couple of things about them. They were on the lowest rung of the lowest rung of every social ladder ever created. In fact, you could not command, or it was, it was uh, faux pas to command, a Jewish slave to engage in this type of demeaning behavior. Feet were dirty. Nobody touches them. And Jesus, all power and authority, all respect, rightly his, he puts on this outfit. He puts on this wardrobe. So he takes his outer garment off. He wraps his waist with a towel. Verse 5 says, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is intimate work. Jesus doesn't line them up and say, boys, trot through these water troughs, and then uh, Peter's going to towel you off at the end. Matthew, get over there. Towel them off between the toes right now. This is intimate work. He's got this towel wrapped around his waist, and so it's, it's not so long. Maybe it's two feet long, and so he's right there. He has their feet in his hands. He dips their foot in the water, and he's wiping over and over again. Goes from Matthew. He moves to the next moves to the next. And so they're laying there and Jesus is moving from disciple to disciple to disciple. Then he comes to Peter. I love Peter. I frequently say things I wish I had not. Many of you, if you've been here for very long, have experienced that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so he comes to Peter and Peter asks a pointy question. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's been washing everybody's feet. Comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you wash my feet? Jesus lets him know there's something else going on here. He says, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterward you will understand. Now you and I have the luxury of knowing the whole narrative, knowing how this all plays out. But I want you to understand something. Peter in that moment, this is a man, he has surrendered his vocation to follow, a man he has left his family to follow. 
A man who's just been praised and, and lauded and adored when he came into Jerusalem. A man who he believes is above every other man ever created. And this guy's doing the most menial, repugnant job. So Peter looks at this, and he looks at himself, and what he says, in essence, is, I'm completely unworthy to let you serve me. I'm completely unworthy to let you serve me. So his question is really recognizing how what Jesus is doing is violating every societal and social norm that's out there. And Jesus tells him, what I'm doing you don't know, I understand, but, but afterward you'll understand. Jesus is trying to awaken him to the reality that there's something else going on here. What's Peter say? Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. I want you to understand that Peter's response here in the Greek is the strongest possible negation. He offers this double negative. He says, uh-uh, no, never, not going to happen. Not going to happen. There is no possible set of circumstances under which you might be allowed to wash my feet. This is how strong he is with his wording and his rebuke to Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus comes to him. And he says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. He says, if I don't wash you, then you have no share with me. Now, clearly, Jesus isn't dividing up the disciples between who allows him to have their feet washed and who doesn't allow them to have their feet washed. Clearly, as he's already indicated to us, there's something greater, there's something more significant going on here. And so Peter hears this, and he hears that, man, I've given you three years, I've given you my life, I've given you my vocation, and if I don't let you touch my feet, I have no part with you. So he responds in very much the same way that I would, and I suspect that many of you would. Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. Peter looks at it effectively, says, look, if a little bit of foot washing unites me with you now, a lot of washing my whole body unites me with you forever. I mean, this is kind of where we would be, right? And so Peter, just in this incredible sense of exuberance and just over, overzealous, says, look, I, okay, I was wrong. You absolutely can wash my feet. In fact, here, wash right here. I didn't hit this this morning. Get my hands. You know how I'm just always touching things and putting them in my mouth. And so would you do me a solid? Would you wash everything? Jesus says, okay, okay. Oh, Pete. He says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Paul gives us a picture into what exactly this deeper meaning and deeper understanding of cleansing is talking about. And he gives it to us in his intimate letter to Titus. Starting in, in verse four of chapter three, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior appeared, verse five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, what Jesus was showing them and demonstrating to them in washing their feet was a precursor with some foreshadowing of what was going to take place when he died on the cross and their sins are able to be washed away. So Jesus is telling them, you 
Once you have been cleansed, once the Holy Spirit has come on you, once all of your sins have been wiped away, you will still have sin that comes into your life for which you have to confess. But you will never again have to be made clean. Recognize that in salvation, God has cleansed you. If you have come to know Jesus, if you have surrendered yourself to him, if you said, man, I am all liability and I am all sin and Jesus is all righteous, that he is the son of God who came, who gave up his life on the cross of Calvary and God raised him from the dead and I put my full faith and confidence in Jesus and not in me and if this is the testimony of your heart, then you are cleansed now and forevermore, amen? So he says, you don't need that experience. You don't need that again. He says, and you are clean. Incidentally, he lets us know that not all of them are clean because he knew that one was to betray him. I want you to think about that for a second. He goes around, and the disciples don't realize that Judas is the one who's going to betray them. Like every time we read through the Gospels, every time Judas is mentioned, it says Judas, the one who would betray him. So we read already judging Judas because we know he's going to betray Jesus. But it's not like all the disciples show up to a party. They're all wearing white. Judas walks in with a black robe and they're like, what's that all about? He's like, you know, I'm just going to betray Jesus later. And they're like, oh, that's a funny joke. And then later he betrays him. They're like, he wasn't joking. We thought Judas had mastered sarcasm, but apparently he was telling us the truth the whole time. They never realized that Judas was going to betray him. So even in the tenderness that Jesus displays, think of the person you have the most difficulty loving. It's a son, it's a daughter, it's a friend, it's your pastor. Think of the person you have the most difficulty loving. Take that to the nth degree. This person's going to hand you over and you're going to be killed on the basis of their testimony. Serve them to the degree that everybody watching you serve them has no idea how you feel about them. That is the depth of love our Savior portrayed on that night. John doesn't write and say, incidentally, we all knew that Judas was the one because of the way Jesus rubbed his feet. Like, it was rough. Like, really rough. Can I tell you that he loves you to that same degree? Man, he has cleansed you. He has made you whole. He has removed every stain of sin from your life. And each time you enter back into that sin, he graciously comes to you again and reminds you of whose you are and what you should be. Graciously, lovingly compelling you, beckoning you to return to him. Verse 12 says, when he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Again, calling on them to recognize this is not just washing your feet. Something else more significant is taking place. And you can imagine all these blank stares as they look to Peter and say, are you going to say something else? No. Okay, let's move on. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord and, and you are right for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, you recognize me being high and mighty and far exalted above you, and you're right about that. You're absolutely right. 
You haven't mischaracterized me. You haven't misunderstood me. When I came in and served you, this wasn't some type of reprioritization where you said, oh, look, Jesus is low and, and base. No, you're right. This is where I am. And because I have done this, you too need to follow my example. And when he's talking about that, Paul absolutely nails it in his discussion of Jesus in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes and says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, in essence, greedily held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now notice, Paul starts that off and he says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ. The mind of a Christ follower is a servant. This is what he calls us to. It's not with puffed out chest and just kind of browbeating everybody that disagrees with us. He calls us to serve. And he calls us to be a servant and to serve the most despised, the ones that hate us the most, the ones who reject us the most, the ones who cast off God's love the most. This is who he calls us to serve in the most unlikely scenarios. So Jesus again tells him, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you sit here today and you would say that the testimony of your heart says that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. And if this is true of you, then the only course that you and I have to follow is that of servanthood. This is what he calls us to. Can you imagine how many situations would be remedied, how, many, uh, how much strife would be done away with if we would take this approach instead of asserting our own sense of self-exaltation? And so every sense in every scenario we walk into as peacemakers, according to Matthew 5, 9, we are doing so with this servant heart of seeking to serve, even to serve those who don't want our service. Because this is what our great God has displayed for us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is able to go on and say, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do. Man, I meet a lot of Christians within this church and this community and everywhere I've been, that it will be true of them that they know these things. In fact, I'd say that most of us over the course of our life, what has been true of us is that we know these things. Man, I've got an eight-year-old Pharisee that lives with me that knows these things. <laughs> right? And points out when I fail on these things. Blessed are you if you do. There's no blessing associated. There's no understanding of Christianity of knowing things and not doing them. To be a Christ follower is to exist in both of those worlds simultaneously. We know them, we do them, and we are known by them. Blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus goes on to tell us sorrowfully, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And he quotes Psalm 41, 9, which reads, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus pulls us into this understanding of kind of Middle Eastern hospitality, that it is, 
inappropriate and not right to show the, the heel, to show the sole of your foot to someone. And he effectively looks at Judas and he says, all of you aren't clean. All of you aren't in the midst of this. This is what he has done. He has turned against me. He has eaten my bread. Jesus has extended close table fellowship with him, but has been rejected by Judas. Jesus tells us that we, he's telling them and us all of these things that they will take place beforehand so that when it does, they may believe in who he is. If you read about Jesus in John 13 and you walk away and, and you are emboldened to serve, but not changed to follow, you've missed it. If you read John chapter 13 and you say, man, Jesus was the son of God and he wiped people's feet, I'm going to take that up. I'm going to go up and down Wesley Street doing that. Or you find yourself doing some other form of service, taking people's trash out, cleaning their trash cans, caring for people that can't care for you. If this is what it has affected in you, you've started down the right path, but you've not landed where Jesus wants you to be. The demonstration of servanthood that Jesus engages in the pattern of humility that he models is so that we would know him and follow him. And this is what we prepare to do in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we recognize Jesus who came and was all-powerful God, humbled himself to the point of being obedient to die on the cross of Calvary. Not for my neighbor's sins, not for my parents' sins, not for my kids' sins, but for my sins. So each of us would say that of ourselves, he has died for my sins. And can I tell you this morning, it's not those sins that you're not ashamed to tell people about. Man, I really struggle with well, something socially acceptable. Being late. I don't value other people's time. I really struggle with that recognizes that Jesus died for the insidious sins that if you were to say it out loud, the people on the road beside you would get up and walk out. This is what he died for. This is what he's made you clean from. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his death and we long for his coming. As the deacons are coming forward and the band is retaking the stage, let me ask you, to begin to think about these things and to focus on these things as the elements are being passed out. Christ the Savior came to serve. And he serves us well on the cross of Calvary. As you receive the cup, I would ask that you hold it and hold the bread and then we will all take in unison at the end. Let me pray God's blessing upon us as we prepare to hand out the elements. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the cross of Calvary. The masterful picture of servanthood that you showed us and the unlikely service of Jesus. God, you lay claim to our lives, those who have submitted themselves to you and those who remain in disobedience and disbelief. God, could we be so bold to pray that even in this time that we would see those move from disbelief to belief, that they would move from darkness to light, that you would find them in their sinfulness and transfer them. 
So God, we pray for them. We pray for those two this morning that are stuck in the cycle of sin and not yet to not ready to relent. God, that you would call them to confession and that you would welcome them in your embrace of forgiveness. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.